This evening we're going to finish the book of Joel after these last number of weeks in it. So we're going to read all of Joel chapter 3. And let me pray for us before we do so. Father, we do thank you for this word. We're thankful that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray even this evening that you would wield it in our midst. That you would strike to the heart and in a way that only you can do. In a way that only your word can do. May it search us, may we find that instead of us reading the Word, that the Word is reading us. And as it were, that we were brought into the very heavens themselves, confronted with you, our living and holy God. Would you bless the reading and the preaching of it to us? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. This is the holy and errant word of God. Behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. Because they have scattered them among the nations, and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are to you, to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the peoples of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion, and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. 
But the Lord is a refuge to His people. A stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. <clears throat> you know, when earthquakes or tsunamis or hurricanes or floods wipe out a couple of hundred people, it just seems absolutely unbelievable let alone when that is thousands of people. It's even more difficult to, to imagine millions of people being wiped out. It's even more difficult to imagine 12 million people being wiped out in a matter of years, not just decades or centuries, but just a few years. This happened in the Jewish Holocaust. Six million Jews and six million, four to six million other people killed in concentration death camps by the Third Reich and that Nazi regime. It was in 1942, in December of 1942, that the Allied powers decided to issue a joint statement, USSR, Great Britain, and the United States of America and issue a joint statement saying that they knew that these atrocities were happening within the borders of Germany and the conquered territories that they had taken. And in that declaration, they said, quote this, we are resolved to prosecute those responsible for violence against civilian populations. It was quite a statement that they were resolved to prosecute. Because Joseph Stalin, as a leader of the USSR, had proposed that they take anywhere from 50,000 to 100,000 officers in the Third Reich at the end of the war and just kill them. Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, discussed the possibility of doing a a summary execution that is an execution without any trial. And that they would just take the Nazis that were in the highest levels of government and they wouldn't bring them to trial, they would just execute them. It was FDR and it was the Americans that said, no, it's much better to prosecute them. Let's make it a trial, a trial for the centuries. And so... Between 1945 and 1949, trials were carried out in Nuremberg, Germany. The defendants were all Nazi party officials or leaders. They were 
members of the Reich. They were generals. They were SS officers. They were businessmen. They were financiers. And each of them were indicted with charges of, quote, crimes against peace and, quote, crimes against humanity. Arguably, justice was done in the most famous court case in all of history. But there's an even greater one to come. One that Joel speaks of here in this final chapter of the book of Joel. We see in these opening verses of chapter 3 that God does not forget or look past the sins of those who have opposed and oppressed His people, even if He chose to use those opponents of His people to discipline His own people, He does not forget what they have done to them. And He won't let them escape. They'll be held accountable. Judgment will come just as it came for those perpetrators of the Nazi Holocaust, even more so because God will set all things right, Joel was saying be held accountable. In fact, there is a storm cloud that just hovers above the opponents of God's people, the enemies of God's people. And it is filled with the wrath of God. And there will be a day that the heavens open up and everything that is dammed up in that cloud will be set loose. Joel gives us a picture of that day in this text. Even as there's promised blessing for God's people, those who come to faith in Him and have, and have come to Him in repentance, so there is equally the promise of judgment for those who opposed His people. Verse 1, he says, In those days and at that time when I, God, will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, at the same time I will gather all the nations, he gathers them. These nations. Who, who are these nations? Well, all those that have oppressed the people of God through the centuries. All those that have worked against them. The Chaldeans will no doubt be there. The Moabites, the Edomites, the Babylonians, the Philistines. You name it, they're there. And they're gathered for one purpose. They're gathered, we're told, in the valley of Jehoshaphat. I don't think Joel has in mind here a, a specific valley as if there is some landmark that that is where all of these opponents of God's people will be gathered. But, but, I mean, he makes that clear, it seems to me at least, in verse 14 where he calls it the valley of decision. He calls it by another name. Jehoshaphat simply means Yahweh judges. And that's why they're gathered. They, they are gathered for Yahweh to judge them in this valley of decision. And after they are gathered, that they're rounded up like all of those Nazi war criminals, then the trial begins. This is the great Nuremberg trial of all of eternity. And the charges are brought. Verse 3, I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have tra traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. 
Here is God the prosecutor laying out the case before God the judge. Their evil was great. And it's not gone unnoticed, and it will not go unpunished. God sees all. They've taken the people of God, he says. They've they've carried them off to foreign lands, having no respect for them. They've conquered the land up, God says, and they divided it among themselves. They've had so little disregard for the people of God that they've literally gambled with their lives. He says they've cast lots for them. A Judean boy, slave, was of so little value that he would be traded for a quick few minutes of pleasure with a prostitute, the text says. And then the worst offense level. A Judean girl sold for a glass of wine, and then the stinging, insulting phrase there, and then drinking of it. She's worth no more to these oppressors than a slight moment of carnal gratification, and they take her like they swallow a drink. The covenant children. The enemies of God's people should quake with fear. Look at the language throughout here. God says, they are my people. They are my heritage. That is my land. Again, he says, my people. An offense against the covenant people of God is an offense against the covenant people's God. A sin against the people of God is a sin against the covenant people's God. An affront to the people of God is an affront to the covenant people's God. Because God so identifies Himself with His people that when you sin against them, you sin against Him. Remember when Saul was persecuting the Christian church and he is chasing them down and he has stood by while Stephen is stoned to death and he's put to, to death and then, then Saul is on his way to Damascus with this writ ready to tr- chase down more Christians and then he hears this voice from heaven as he is struck blind on the, Emmaus road, on the Damascus road and what does he say? What does that voice say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? Me. Me. I think if the enemies of the church could understand this today, they would fall on their faces like Saul. And they would cry out for mercy and there would be tears of fear. God will not and cannot let wickedness against His people stand without judgment because He is so closely identified with His people that any offense given to them is given to Him. What did Jesus say? As you've done it to the least of them, so you've done it to me. God especially highlights in verses 4 through 8 the sins of the Phoenicians, Tyre and Sidon, and then the Philistines, because they were the middlemen, they played the, the slave trader role, and they made a profit off the people of God. 
In Amos 1, the Lord says to Tyre, He says, For three transgressions of Tyre and four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour their strongholds. They weren't the conquerors. So some may think, so maybe, maybe Tyre and Sidon, maybe these, these Philistines and these Phoenicians, maybe they get to actually escape God's judgment. They were not the Hitler or the Himmler or the Goebbels. Maybe they could quietly escape. I read a book a few years ago about uh, Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was, was a man that was a lieutenant colonel in, in the SS, and he was part of the final solution. He was a pretty prominent figure in the Holocaust. And at the end of the war, uh, Eichmann was captured, but he disguised himself. And he ended up in a couple of prisoner of war camps, and then he was transferred out and eventually ran off to Italy. And then from Italy, he made his way to Argentina, as did many of the former Nazis that escaped. And 15 years after the war, uh, the Mossad, the, the Jewish secret police that had been started, their kind of CIA military arm, because Israel had just been established 15 years later in 1960, they decided that this man was their number one enemy, Eichmann, and they needed to track him down. They wanted every single Nazi, every single person that had participated in the Holocaust to be held accountable. And so there's this incredible operation where they are trying to find out information about him and, and find out where he is and where it is that he's hiding and where he's living. And finally, they track him down to a community in Argentina. And so they send a team of 30 people down to Argentina to spy him out, and then they erect this elaborate plan so that they can catch him and they have to kidnap him because they want to bring him back to Israel for trial. They don't want to just put him to death. And they get their man. In 1960, Eichmann will stand trial in Israel, eventually be condemned to death. But there are many that the Mossad never captured escaped, but none of God's enemies escape. None. Every single one will face full and final and complete justice. God the prosecutor brings the charges in the trial, and God the judge pronounces and executes a swift verdict. He says in verse 4, I will return your payment on your own head, swiftly and speedily. There's no defense allowed for these nations. The prosecutor has made his case, and there's no defense made because there is no defense that could be made. They, they can't explain away their actions. They can't nuance them or pull a shade over God's eyes and confuse the judge. There's no hung jury here. The verdict is absolutely swift. So he has the nations assemble 
proclamation goes out in verse 9. And the call is for them, these nations, to gather together for war in this valley of decision, in this valley of Jehoshaphat. Let their mightiest warriors come out, God says. In fact, let the entire nation come out. Those who are in the fields with their plows, in verse 10, we are told, make them into swords. That is, even the farmers, their pruning hooks are to be made into spears. Let the entire nation assemble and bring their full force out to face God in battle. Even the weakest among them, God says, let everyone come. It is a reversal of that well-known prophecy in Isaiah 2, isn't it? We're told that those in Judah and Jerusalem will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's because the people of God shall know peace, whereas the opponents of God will know battle. And this battle and the final verdict of God, they're one and the same. You're guilty. That's the verdict. So you come out and you fight me. Battle is His way of executing His divine justice. And so the picture is that here they are all of these assembled mortal men with, with their, their plows that they've turned into swords and, and, and things that they've turned into spears, and they're going out to, to fight God. It would almost be comical if it wasn't just so tragic. If people brandishing swords and spears to fight the omnipotent, Notice in the text, it's not they who charge God. They don't assault Him. It's not they who bring the attack. Their their days of doing so are over. And their attacks, though they have been injurious to the people of God for a temporal moment, they did nothing to them eternally. And though they've been aimed at God, they have not taken Him off His throne, not even for a moment. shaking their fist at the wind. Now it's God who attacks. As He issues His verdict of guilty, verse 13, put the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. As God said in His promise to Abraham that his people would return to the land after four generations. He said it would take four generations because the iniquity of the Amorites must reach its full. There's a set of Babylon in Revelation 18 that, quote, her sins are heaped as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. There's a set of Babylon that, quote, as she glorified herself, and lived in luxury, so give her like a measure of torment and mourning. It is as the enemies of God and His people gave, so they shall receive, and worse. Their iniquity and sin is so great that they're now ripe for judgment and destruction, God is saying, like a child who sees a tower of blocks stacked there high and just teetering, and he can't help but push it over. So their sin has so reached the heavens that God looks down upon it, and He must bring them down. 
Wickedness never goes unnoticed and it never goes unpunished. Joel, though, I find fascinating this. He doesn't give us a picture of the devastation that God wreaks with His wrath. We receive a picture of it, though, in Revelation 14. We're told that the Son of Man swings His sickle across the earth and He reaps it. And then another angel, we're told, takes His sickle and He swings it across the earth and He reaps it. And then we hear this. This angel gathered the grape harvest of the earth. Men, women, children. And threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's 184 miles up to the horse's bridle. It's a frightful scene. Joel doesn't give that picture. Instead, he pans out, if you will. He gives us the wide-angle lens by telling us of the cosmic effects of God's wrath being exercised. Verse 15, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars stop shining. And as one commentator said, if the stable bodies of the natural world were convulsed at Yahweh's appearing, it can be taken for granted that mere mortals have little chance of escape. One just thinks of the temporal judgment that came upon these nations. Not one of them exists today. None of them. Chaldea, Aramea, Moab, Edom, Ammon, Philistia, Phoenicia, not one. And yet the people of God are spread out throughout the entire earth. And they not only survive, but are thriving. And that was not even the final judgment that we shall see in the valley of decision. These are not my favorite texts to preach. I would much rather preach texts about the gospel and grace than the wrath of God. And yet, I think as the church today, we have become squeamish about these things. And we don't do anyone any favors. We don't do ourselves any favors. We don't do a lost and dying world any favors by sugarcoating that final judgment or by bypassing it or by treating it as if it shall not happen. Truly, it is. it will be a sad commentary on that day. And some people will stand in that valley of decision and they'll say, I never knew there was going to be a day like this. It's a sad commentary on us. We haven't warned. We haven't believed that that day is coming. It will be a final judgment in the valley of decision. Finally, though, the promise. We've seen the gathering, the trial, the verdict, and now the promise. The final wonderful promises of verse 17 to the end of the book. 
that even as the enemies of God's people received the worst of all possible fates, God's people themselves received the richest of gifts. The picture that Joel paints here is of extreme bounty. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk. A fountain watering all the earth. Just abundance. But the greatest of blessings is found in the bookends there at the very end in verse 17. And then again in verse 21 where it says, And the Lord is dwelling with His people. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. In the verse 21, it ends with this note. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The promise of blessing is great because the God who is in our midst is great. Our provision, our abundance and bounty and eternity is guaranteed by the fact that God is in our very midst. Revelation 21 pictures that as as the, the new city Jerusalem, that is the people of God that that are in heaven as they descend upon the earth and, and heaven and earth become one. And there God makes his home among his people forever. This new remade earth that is truly heaven on earth. We're told there in Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, our sorrows, our pains, our discouragements, our disappointments, our struggles, our persecution, our failures, our loss, they're not lost on God. It's not forgotten. It's not dismissed. It's just part of, of His people living in a fallen world. They just got to get over that and let's go on. Oh, he provides for those who are His and He knows their sorrows and He will set things right. More than right. He gives blessing upon blessing to His people for all of eternity. Those enemies which seem so strong now. Those enemies that seem to have all might. will be proven feeble on that day. And every one of them will reap what they have sowed. Every one of them will be held accountable. There will be no South American country to hide in. There will be no disguise that they can put on. All will stand naked before God and give an account and receive His judgment. All. And that means that you and I don't have to get too worked up about the enemies of the church. We don't have to fret. 
You don't have to worry. You don't have to have sleepless nights over elections or books or commentaries on TV or marches or new laws. God will deal with them in His timing. We can trust in that. Because all wickedness is accounted for with God. None of it escapes judgment. God will pour out His full wrath on all wickedness. But He only does it twice in history. Just twice. It's not at Noah's flood. It's not when the walls of Jericho fall down. It's not even in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem is destroyed. It happens here, as we see in the text, on that final day of judgment in that valley of Jehoshaphat and that valley of decision. And it happens at the cross. Where His full wrath is unleashed. One or the other, our sins and our wickedness is paid for. If you're in Christ, then you are saved, not because you're better than the other people that will be gathered in that valley on that last day. It's not because you're better than them, but it's simply because you had one that lived for you, that died for you, and was raised on the third day for you, and God has extended His grace to you. And He poured out His wrath on Him carried your burdens, who carried your wickedness, who carried your sin. If there is anything that this chapter screams to us, it screams, make sure of yourself that you are in Christ. Make sure that you are in Christ. as these young people did this evening, that you have made a public profession of faith. You have placed your faith in Christ alone as your Lord and your Savior, and you have yielded your life to His, and He has become yours, and you are trusting in Him alone. Because otherwise you appear in that valley, and there's no escape. But if you have, Know the blessed life forevermore. The extreme ends of, of each sides of that equation, that, the, that fate of each, they could not be more drastically set apart. Eternal destruction. Eternal wrath of God. Eternal happiness and blessedness in the midst of God and knowing Him as your Father for all of eternity. Make sure you're in Christ. Rest in Him. It is safe within. It is fraught with peril without. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we do confess that we 
much more drawn to your love and your grace than your holy wrath. And yet we are thankful. We're thankful that you are a God who upholds justice. Those who have done the great atrocities of this life shall not escape punishment. Those who have done wrong to the cause of Christ and to the church have not repented and confessed of their sins, that you will hold them accountable. Oh, and Lord, impress upon our hearts this evening any that are in this room that have not come under the shade of your Son, that have not come underneath his wings and found him to be a rock and a refuge and a sure hiding place. Lord, I pray for their benefit that they would have tossings all through the night this evening until they find themselves upon their knees at their bedside crying out to you, forgive me a sinner. We're thankful that you are a God who shines such grace into this world and pours it out upon those that you've called to yourself. May we come to know more fully that which we have been saved from, so we might more rejoice in you, our Lord and our merciful God. It's in the great name of our Lord and our Savior who bore our wrath for our sins that we pray.